Welcome to today's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Well, David, you know, we just uh, had such a great conversation with uh, Steve Murphy, uh, who's a legend in the broadcasting field in Canada. It was such a good conversation that we're going to make it a two-part podcast. Uh, We covered such a wide range of topics, and uh, it was just too interesting not to uh, have a, a longer conversation with them. And uh, I think people will enjoy seeing Steve on the other side of the microphone for the maybe one of those rare times. And I know as somebody who has been interviewed by him a number of times, that I personally enjoyed that opportunity to put him on the other side of the microphone. Yeah, I think he did a really good job. I mean, it's really hard to distill 40 plus years of, of, a, of a journalism career in Atlanta, Canada, down to a few minutes. So we will have to break this one into two. But I, I just found it very, very uh, informative. He's got very strong opinions uh, on this region, on its economy, on what has happened. Uh, and I think the listeners are going to find a lot of nuggets in there that they probably didn't know. So I think it's a, it'll be well worth you know, the hour and a half that, that uh, listeners will take in the two parts to this uh, podcast. Yeah, we have to remember that, you know, Steve has uh, witnessed history during his career. He's been a chronicler of, uh, of uh, what's happened, uh, not just in our region, obviously, but uh, by providing uh, uh, people in Atlantic Canada with uh, the news uh, over a long period of time. And you know, it provides them with a, an interesting perspective to judge things like, you know, we asking him, you know, who, who's, who are the most consequential premiers? I mean, he's interviewed something like 45 premiers in his career, not all from in this region, but, you know, he's talked to them personally. So, you know, not many people have had that opportunity to assess people up close and personal. And uh, uh, his answers on that, I think, are interesting and, and worth, uh, uh, and the reasons for them are also interesting. Um, and, you know, we ask them a, a number of other interesting topics in, in terms of uh, the changes that have happened over this region over more than four decades of being in the business. You know, he paints a really pretty good picture of the progress that we've made. I mean, sometimes you don't see the progress year to year, but, you know, over a long period of time, you look back and, and uh, you say, yeah, you know, we've come a long way, despite ourselves in some cases, but we have come a long way. Yeah, this is always the challenge with journalists. They have to go very broad. They have to be able to cover a wide swath of issues. And sometimes they're not going very deep. So they don't necessarily have a deep knowledge of uh, anything because they're, you know, they're, they're by definition, they have to cover the stories at a high level. Uh, but he's obviously really given some, some of these big issues like the state of the economy, uh, like urban development, like uh, deindustrialization. He talked a lot about that. He's obviously given quite a bit of thought to these issues, and I think the listeners will appreciate his uh, his insights. Yeah, we asked them some uh, some hard questions about the state of uh, the media and and the loss of uh, credibility and what needs to be done to regain that credibility. I was really interested in his answer to to that question in particular, where you know he he basically said the blurring of uh, being a uh, news. Uh, Broadcaster uh, reporting the news and edit being uh, you know ed, uh, providing commentary on it has blurred to such an extent that we don't know the difference between opinion and fact anymore, 
And that was a really, uh, that was a really uh, interesting response. I think that we're, we're lucky in Canada, I think, relative to the United States, where that line hasn't been blurred quite as much. And uh, if you think about someone like Steve Murphy, uh, you know, he very seldom editorializes um, what's going on. He, he's done some things. Uh, um, he recently did something on um, a Memorial uh, Remembrance Day, I believe, but it's rare for him to uh, put his own opinions out there. Although he says in retirement, he might be doing more of that. Yeah, you really touched the nerve. I think he spent more time on that subject than any other uh, in his response, but I think he's right on the money. It's We're, we're, we're just inundated now with information uh, but very, it's very unclear how much of that is fact. And, and so right. to be able to watch the nightly news with Steve Murphy and know that you're getting the straight goods, you know, hopefully that will continue into the future. But it certainly has been the case with his journalism career over the past 40 years. And I also felt that uh, one of the things that he said is the need to have some integrity in the editing process. In other words, fact-checking to make sure that what's being covered uh, by media outlets is actually fact-checked uh, and not uh, just put out there without any uh, any challenges. And, and obviously, people need to be worried about having a reputation for integrity and credibility to do that. Most of our uh, media outlets in Canada have that, I think, so we're fortunate that way. But um, the other thing that I found uh, interesting is that, you know, he's a great interviewer. Um, he's the best that, uh, that ever interviewed me in this region for sure over my career. Uh, what I liked about him is that he was always incredibly respectful, number one. Um, and, he, and, and he asked smart questions that had been clearly researched. And he wasn't, uh, he wasn't afraid of asking questions that might be uncomfortable for the person being interviewed. And not only that, but if they didn't answer the question, he would ask, ask it again until he got an answer. I mean, that's, uh, that's what journalism is about, to get the answers for the audience so that they know uh, kind of uh, where the individual stands on the issues that are being uh, covered. Yeah, I agree with that. He's a very disarming guy, but he will ask you those insightful questions uh, and he'll be clear if you don't, if he doesn't get the kind of answer that he wants from the question. So I think that's been one of the signature attributes of his career. And I think that's what he'll be known for. One of the things he'll be known for moving forward. And I guess, you know, uh, the other thing that, uh, I didn't think he was going to be retiring, you know, he's going to continue to do, uh, assignments, uh, for CTV. And I, I wouldn't be surprised that he carved out a career as a, uh, as a, keynote speaker because he's got a lot to say is uh, he, he and I think he's, he'll enjoy putting his own opinions out there in a more uh, sort of open fashion because uh, he'll have the freedom to do that I kind of went through that in the last decade of my career I just I just started saying things that I wouldn't otherwise have said earlier because I felt the freedom to say those things out loud but um, I, I look forward to that uh, next phase of, uh, of his career because he's he's only a young man I think he's in his early 60s right so he's he's not going to go anywhere, anywhere yeah I think there's a lot soon. yeah there's a lot we'll hear a lot more from Steve Murphy in the coming years I think I'd like to see we talked to him about potentially writing uh, another book uh, we'll see if he does that but certainly I think we haven't seen the last of Steve Murphy no, so uh, let's uh, get into part one of our two-part conversation with Steve Murphy. Steve, welcome to our podcast. Don, Great David, to have you here. Thanks. 
Yeah, great to have you. It's a little a bit of a role reversal for me, so bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I waited a long time to be on this side. <laughs> That's right. We've got Steve Murphy on the hot seat. This is going to be fun. Turn, turn about his fair play, gentlemen. <laughs> Once every 40 years, I think, Steve, that's probably acceptable. Okay. <laughs> Steve, your career in broadcasting spanned more than four decades. You started your career in New Brunswick in the late 70s. Tell us a little bit about your career path that led you to becoming the long-term anchor uh, for CTV Atlantic. Well, looking back on it, to be honest with you, gentlemen, I got a job. I got hired for a job, but I really stumbled into the career, if you will. In high school, I got a job in a radio newsroom in, in St. John, my hometown. And I was hired, I thought, to go in and read weekend news and learn to be the rewrite man and, and read a couple of late night newscasts. But one thing led to another. And before I was through grade 11, I was actually doing a full-time desk shift at CFBC Radio, going to work right after after high school at four o'clock or thereabouts and working until 1230 or one in the morning. And, you know, one thing led to another. I mean, it's, it's a shop-worn phrase, but it's true in my case, because when I graduated from high school, I decided to take a year off to pursue the radio news business, which by then I'd become very keen on it. And I was making a few bucks and having a good time. And I was 18 years old and uh, it seemed like a good idea to take a year off. And to be honest, and I used to joke with my late mother about this uh, until the day she died, I, I'm I'm still continuing the year off. I just never got back to Carleton for a journalism degree or, or Dallas or SMU for an undergrad or UNB for the law degree I thought about doing as a kid. And it's really because I was fortunate to run into a succession of employers who gave me opportunities and the opportunity not only to do the job, but to hopefully improve and get some training and so on. And lo and behold, lo these many years later, uh, here I am. So I think there was a bit of happenstance involved. There was a bit of good fortune involved, to be sure. And as I say, a succession of people who had the confidence to allow me to do what I wanted to do and pretty much the way I wanted to do it. Uh, Steve, to some extent, you have helped chronicle the last four decades in Atlantic Canada. Looking back over uh, uh, to when your career began, mm. what are some of the biggest changes in the regions that you have witnessed over, over that period? Well, I'm going to start in the present, Don, and work backward. I think what we're witnessing in the Halifax metropolitan area right now is one of the biggest changes that we've seen. The development that is now going on in a concentrated area in the Halifax region is very significant. It's been a long time coming. The seeds of many of these projects were planted many, many years ago and are only now coming to fruition. This is also part of something that you've talked about before, which is the movement of our population from our rural areas into our urban areas. This is happening not only in the Halifax area, but it's happening in the greater Moncton area as well, and the Fredericton area to a lesser degree. It's still happening in the St. John area. Uh, so we're, we're seeing a tremendous shift in our population from rural into urban. We're seeing development as a result in our urban areas. And we're also seeing, of course, finally, the development of a multicultural society in the maritime communities, particularly the cities, because of the Atlantic Pilot Project, and also because I think there's been a rediscovery of Atlantic Canada as an extraordinary place to live by new Canadians and by Canadians who maybe were raised here and left and are now coming back, and by others who are the children of the grandchildren of people who went west many years ago and are now coming back. 
hand in hand with that dawn, and I grew up in an industrial town, I think I have regrettably witnessed the deindustrialization of our, of our economy. Uh, it's a mixed blessing. I mean, you know, making, as Casey Irving used to say, making the wheels turn is, is messy work. But it was also very good for our industrial communities. When I look at St. John, the industry that we've lost in my lifetime in St. John, the industry we've lost in the industrial Cape Breton area, for example. Um, so we've, we've really witnessed deindustrialization of the Maritimes economy. And I, again, I will. I think the fair-minded can debate whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. The loss of the jobs has clearly hurt us. And our inability to replace those jobs, particularly high-paying jobs, in our industrial cities, I think is is a problem that has yet to be dealt with. But to come back where I to where I started, what's going on in the Halifax area right now, I think, is very symbolic not only of what what is going on in, in Halifax. I mean, it, it represents a real change here, but it's also somewhat symbolic of what's happened across the economy. Looking at where the region is today, Steve, what are the biggest challenges still facing Atlantic Canada, in your opinion? Well, I'm going to sound a bit like Don Mills, I think, in this answer, Don. Uh-oh. I think I think population is really the key to our entire economic and political situation here. And if I can be a little bit of a maritime nationalist, which, by the way, I consider myself to be, I'm very proud to be a Canadian, but I'm particularly proud to be a Canadian from the maritime provinces. Um, the first, by the way, of my ancestors came here about 400 years ago. And even the earliest of my Irish ancestors came here 350 years ago. So I feel very deeply rooted and connected to this part of the world. And I think the fair-minded could say, and Donald Savoie has said this, among others, that really in the last 150 years, we haven't done particularly well here for a number of reasons, but they really do concentrate around lack of political influence and political power, and that, of course, is tied to population. So going forward, I see the challenges and the solutions to our problems resting in those areas that you've said so much about in your professional life, Don, and that is growing our population, finding a way to support and sustain ourselves, growing our economy, and therefore building our political influence. And it's a Gordian knot of issues. So it's not always clear to me or I think to anyone where one begins to deal with these problems. But I think we do know what the problems are and we do need to spend you know, a tremendous amount of time finding a way to, un- to unravel that Gordian knot. Because if we don't get some political influence, some political power, uh, whether it's through, I'm not saying that we re- redress the way that the country is governed, but I, for one, have never believed in in Senate abolition, at least not seriously in my adult life. If we don't find a way to make the Senate more representative of our of our aspirations and our needs here, perhaps we need to ask ourselves whether there is some way that we can come together to become a more powerful voice. Because at the moment, I don't think our voice is heard uh, in most of the national debates in this country. So we had uh, actually had Donald Savoy on recently, and he did articulate that uh, very clearly. So that's a good point. I did want to ask you to, to unpack a little bit more your thoughts about why we've seen lower growth in the last decade or so. There's been green shoots, that, yeah. in, in particular, as you said, in Halifax, Moncton, some of the urban centers. But in general, we have had lower growth uh, since the Great Recession of 2008. You talked about political uh, considerations there. You talked about deindustrialization. Are there other population, are there other issues, do you think, that have uh, 
uh, led to this lower economic growth in our region, or is it mostly around deindustrialization? Well, you know, again, and I, I, I would defer to to you on this somewhat. Um, at the risk of sounding like a paranoid, I'm not sure that national policy has served this this region well historically, and I don't think it is serving us very well now. And that, of course, is intimately connected to our lack of political cleft. You know, we, we have had some good regional ministers here who occasionally stand up and, and get something for the region. But the fact is, our, our obvious advantages are often overlooked in national policy. I look back to the demise of the shipbuilding industry in, in St. John, where I grew up in the 1980s. And after the construction of the new fleet at that time, the new fl- f- fleet of frigates for the Navy, you know, that shipyard, the Irving St. John shipyard closed. And I believe that it closed because shipbuilding just wasn't a national priority for Canada, perhaps because, or in fact, I'm certain it's because we don't have the members of parliament who are sitting around and banging the drum loudly enough for an industry in which we have a decided advantage. I mean, tidewater is a great advantage when you're building ships. We have a history here of of some of the greatest shipbuilding in history, in the yes, it was the age of sail. I, I fully realize that, but a lot of our technologies that we developed here in the 1980s were lost because there wasn't a coherent national shipbuilding strategy. And so it is when it came time to build another generation of ships for the Navy. You know, fortunately, we were able to get most of that work, or you know, a significant amount of it, uh, here in this in this region. But we almost had to go and reinvent our industry. That that shouldn't be happening in in a marine nation like Canada. And I don't think it would be happening if we had population. I've said before, and I, I'll stand to be corrected on this if I'm wrong on the facts. I don't think I am. There, there is not another strip of continental coastline in the world where there's not a population center of a million people, except the one that begins at Boston and runs to the North Pole. We're in it. And if you go back, as Don Savoie and others have done, and look at where we were at the time of Confederation, uh, communities like St. John, New Brunswick, Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, Shelburne, Nova Scotia, Halifax, uh, Sydney, and Charlottetown, we were major continental players at that time. And as a result of the, the, the continental policy that developed within Canada, which favored you know, our, our friends to the West as opposed to our trading partners in the South, we now do not have a population center of a million people. I mean, think about the map of the world. Can you think of another continental coastline where there is not a city of a million people? So I think that national policy has never really favored our advantages here. And it's hard to tell what came first, the lack of population, the lack of the lack of industry, or the lack of opportunity, but it's all connected to me. And I think that the solution must begin in finding a voice and having the voice be heard. Uh, uh, Steve, I just wanted to... Uh, uh ask you something uh, uh, that came up in our uh, recent podcast with Paulette Hicks, who, mm-hmm. as you know, is the CEO of Envision, the Economic Development Agency for yes. the Greater St. John area. In their strategic plan, they actually have um, a strategy to change attitudes in that community. I've always felt that we have attitudinal barriers that hold us back in this region. The Ivany report actually said the same thing. Yeah, you're right. What, what what do you think we need to do to change 
attitudes towards a more prosperous future in this region? Well, you know, uh, you know, you mentioned Ivany's work, Don, um, you know, it's seminal work. I go back and look at uh, many of the things that Frank McKenna did when he was premier of New Brunswick to help build a positive image of New Brunswick within New Brunswick. And by the way, that quickly translated into New Brunswick's image being transformed in, in Canada and even internationally. Quite often, I think it is a simple matter of reminding ourselves of what our great advantages are. I don't want to live in the past, by the way. I, I don't counsel that at all. You know, McKenna said to me in an, in an interview a couple of weeks ago, he's lived his life looking through uh, the, 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 um, the, the front window, looking through the windshield, yeah, not, yes. the, not, the, not the rear view mirror. And I agree with that, but McKenna also had a very strong sense of where he'd come from. And history is often a pretty good uh, guide, a pretty good map for where we can go. I think we need to remind ourselves of, me- of what many of our advantages, our natural advantages are. And somehow or other, we, we, some, we sometimes forget that. And I think maybe there's a certain amount of frustration that comes from feeling we don't get heard. And again, when you're a small player, um, you know, the small fish in a big pond, uh, you know, you're always at risk of being swallowed up by the big fish. But there are lots of little fish around, but we have to keep, we have to swim hard. And we also, I think, need to constantly remind ourselves of what our advantages are. But, you know, do we, do we have a bit of a chip on our shoulder? I don't know that it's a chip on our shoulder so much as um, Maybe we've reluctantly concluded that we're down and we can't get up, but I, I don't believe that. And by the way, we have more per capita examples of successful entrepreneurial families, mainly here in the Maritimes, probably than anywhere else. You know all the names. We all know them. The Irvings, the McCains, the Sobies, the Jodries, John Bragg, Kenro. I mean, these these are all families that are continuing to thrive in the maritime provinces from a maritime base. And I'm sounding a lot like Savoy here, but I strongly agree with them on these things. They've stayed here and they've they've stayed here because they like the way they're able to do business by staying here. So they recognize those advantages. And maybe what we need to continue to do is is export their message, as, as Donald has done in his, in his book, his recent book about uh, about Bragg. Which is, an ex- which is an excellent read for anybody who wants to get a sense of why you can be number one in the world in frozen blueberries and do it from Oxford, Nova Scotia. It can be done. He's doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, those, that's, that's a really interesting challenge that we have. I think I, I've, I've come up with a, 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 more, a new theory on the issue of attitudes, by the way, you might be interested in. Sure. So we've spoken about it. The fact that we've had not our, had our share of immigrants in this region forever until only recently meant what? We didn't have people coming in with new ideas from other areas of the world, new ambitions, new motivations, a willingness to you know accept change, be the agents of change. And I think that that may have solidified the attitudes that seem to have become ingrained in this region for over a long period of stagnant population growth. So at least that's my yeah, answer. The, I'm working on there that. There may one. well be something to that theory. I mean, <laughs> if you look at where many of the great ideas in the 19th century came from, I mean, Samuel Kennard had some pretty good ideas. Hmm. Uh, he was a newcomer uh, when he when he arrived here. And I think you're right. Newcomers bring new ideas. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Let's just switch uh, topics a little bit. Sure. Uh, you have a well-deserved reputation as being a fair but tough interviewer. I've had a number of experiences uh, in the interview chair. And by the way, I, I just want to say this personally, uh, Steve, and this is, uh, uh, I, I considered you the best interviewer 
that ever interviewed me over my career in this region. Oh, no. And and I had a lot of people interview me nationally. You were you were insightful and asked the right questions, and they well, uh, they were thank really, you, yeah. But how did you develop your style of interviewing? Because it, you know it's it's clearly doesn't come naturally to other broadcasters yeah. as it does to you. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to begin by first acknowledging that I was given by CTV about 20 years ago the rare opportunity to do a daily long form interview. Now, six minutes may not seem like a long form interview mm. when you compare it to a one hour podcast, but in, in daily television, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes is a long is a long interview. Yeah. So we committed to doing that when we came up with the one hour format for the six o'clock newscast about 20 years ago. At the time, uh, really, most of the interviews on TV were two or three minutes. They were heavily edited. You usually got one or two questions and then one or two heavily truncated answers. We decided we wanted to do something different. We wanted to do, first of all, mainly live interviews where there wouldn't be a lot of editing or live to tape interviews, which, you know, essentially a live situation captured on what was then videotape. It's now digitally captured and then replayed. And that we wanted to do that and we wanted to do it daily. And we wanted to maybe create a brand opportunity for ourselves so that when newsmakers had something to say, they wanted to say it to us because they would get enough time to answer the question and they could count on us to do it every day, not on a sort of hit and miss basis. So I would, I would begin by saying, were it not for the opportunity to work on an interview every day, I don't know that my interview style would have changed a lot or at all. Uh, I will say that over the years, I think I got better at listening and paid more attention to the answers than just the questions. And I think obviously, you know, when you're doing a podcast like this or an interview, you do need to have questions in mind. It's okay to write them down. It's okay to have a strategy or a protocol. It's also okay to totally abandon the strategy or the protocol when you hear something that's better than what you thought you were going <laughs> to get. So I think I, I think I became a better listener. I hope I did. I do run um, all of my interviews through the filter of what do people really want to know, not only about this subject, but about this person. And for me, every interview really does begin with trying to find out who you're talking to. Now, sometimes it's easy. If it's Stephen McNeil, well, he's the Premier of Nova Scotia. You've interviewed him lots of times. You don't really have to go back and find out what his you know, frame of reference is. Uh, where he came from, uh, what he did professionally before, you know, whatever brings him to the interview chair. But when I'm interviewing somebody for the first time, I do do that, go back and try to find out a little bit about them, because I think everybody's uh, context is the product to some degree of where they came from, um, what they've done with their, with their life and so on. So I think it's important to try to know the person you're interviewing a little bit about that person. And I also think that, uh, over the years, maybe my own expectations for the answers evolved. And by that, I mean, it's easy to ask a question and when you don't get an answer, just move on. The problem with that is the people who are seeing or listening to the interview, and we are doing it for them. I mean, this is not mainly for us. As much fun as it is to talk to you two guys, I mean, I think we're doing this because we think other others might want to listen in. Uh, the people who are listening aren't going to be satisfied if you ask a question, you know, about uh, about the, the kind of pizza you like and somebody wants to talk about chocolate milk. I mean, and this often happens in interviews. 
you know, and I sometimes have said on the air, you've just given me an answer to a question I didn't ask. Uh, and I'm not trying to be saucy when I say that. I'm saying it because I think the interviewee needs to know that we know you didn't answer the question. And the people listening or watching, they know. And there's only one of two reasons to not answer the question. It's either that you don't know or you don't want us to know. And neither is really acceptable, particularly from leaders of politics and to, to a substantial degree people who are business leaders as well. I, I think customers, voters, they're entitled to to better answers than that. And I think it's important to call them out on it. I didn't do that in the beginning. And frankly, it's sometimes quite uncomfortable to do it, but it is what is required in those accountability sessions, at least in my view. Uh, are there any broadcasters in particular that have influenced you as a, as a broadcaster, Steve? Uh, yes, interviewed me as a broadcaster and a few who've interviewed really influenced me as an interviewer too, Don. Um, I mean, obviously Dave Wright, who was the the longtime anchor of Live at Five and then the, our Six O'clock News and frankly the guy who set me up with my first great radio opportunity here on on, on talk radio. Dave, Dave was a huge influence. Dave was a master innovator and Dave was one of the very best communicators I've ever seen when it comes to understanding uh, the audience and trying to make sure you're presenting information in a way that the audience will find satisfying. Uh, Lloyd Robertson was a huge influence. Uh, on me because I think he's the gold standard for news anchors in in North America. If you look at his style of presentation, his consistency, his integrity, his longevity. So Lloyd was a huge influence. And frankly, I was very fortunate that he and I became friends over the years and he gave me many good opportunities as well. I always liked David Brinkley. I thought he was a an interesting news presenter and he was a pretty darn good interviewer. He was very, very sharp and unfailingly polite. And, uh, you know, recently, and we lost him way too soon, but Tim Russert, uh, who was the longtime host of Meet the Press on NBC, was a master interviewer. Uh, and he was a lawyer, and it showed in the way he interviewed people. He, he, didn't take, um, he didn't take answers that didn't really provide enlightenment. He called people out on that. And surprisingly, although he was a master interrogator, <laughs> he never had any trouble getting guests because he had ratings and audience. And people would tune in just to see him you know, take on Dick Cheney or take on Barack Obama or whomever was in the chair, but there was always the right person in the chair. So that, they were all people who, who influenced me, I, I suppose. I would hope maybe I, I picked up a few tricks from them along the way. Steve, this might be a challenging question for you or not. Now, thinking about your career, what are the biggest stories you've covered uh, yeah. in this region? And if there's a one that's related to the economy, I, uh, that might be interesting to the listeners as well. Yeah, well, I'll answer that one first because we were talking about uh, shipbuilding. I think that the ships project that has occurred now twice in the Maritimes, you know, as, as an industrial and economic story is huge. It's interesting to me, too, that when you drive by the Halifax Industry Shipyard now, you'd have no sense that ships are being built in there and that, that a couple thousand people are working there. And it's because of that huge shed that, that Jim Irving built, which he points out if you, if you turned it up, you know, end to end, it'd be taller than, I think he said, the Empire State Building or... or the CN Tower, whatever it is. I mean, it's a huge ship factory, you know, and they're literally building ships in there. We don't see them until they come out the other end. So some people, I think, at Halifax are still perhaps blithely unaware of just how big the ship project is. And that's the direct employment. I'm not, not even getting into the indirect employment that's created by it. And the same thing happened in St. John when Irving built the ships uh, in, in the 1980s and the early 1990s. So I think the shipbuilding stories 
have been huge, but maybe a little underappreciated. I'll also say when I interviewed Daryl Dexter a few months ago uh, on the anniversary of the of the shipbuilding contract being awarded to Halifax, Daryl claimed, and understandably so if you're Daryl, that his decision to provide the Irvings with the forgivable loan, which his government did, and I would say somewhat controversially did, that he considers that to be one of the greatest economic development initiatives in the history of Nova Scotia. I will leave it to to others to to decide, determine whether it's right or wrong. Maybe we don't even know yet. But I do know this. Anytime we're measuring projects in the tens to perhaps hundred billion dollar range and thousands of jobs over, you know, a generation, we're talking about very, very significant projects. And I think both of those projects fit the bill. So that to me has been an ongoing story that is sometimes underappreciated. I've tried over my years at CTV to to keep doing interviews about the ship's project with the president of the shipyards when, when McCoy was there and his predecessor, his successor, even with Jim Irving, because I think it's an important project that again, you can drive by there and not see the ship's for the for that that huge hall, you know, it's like not seeing the forest for the trees. But one of the biggest stories I covered was really uh, in my first few months. There was a terrible fire in the jail in St. John in 1977, and as fate would have it, I was around the corner in the radio station, which was literally two blocks away, and I ended up among the first reporters on the scene of a fire in which 21 men died uh, in the lockup. I was a 17-year-old kid uh, watching this and uh, seeing the body bags coming out and, you know, in the the acrid smoke, which I I still have a sense of how it smelled and felt because it was burning. There was a lot of um, foam rubber had burned inside. It was a terrible, a terrible smell and it was a bitter taste. And I'll never forget that because it was a hometown thing that involved mostly guys who were in the jail sleeping it off or, you know, in for some minor petty crime. They, these weren't hardened criminals. And uh, they died and a man was later convicted of manslaughter, 21 counts in all of their deaths. And everybody in St. John knew somebody in that jail or knew knew somebody who knew somebody, if you, if you will. And so that was really maybe the, the sort of tragic loss of life story against which I measured all the others that have come along. And there have been several. I mean, I would think of Westray, uh, which it began as a story of hope and ended as a, a story of terrible despair and has led to tremendous changes, legal changes, liability uh, changes. And of course, the loss of life at Swiss Air, which was a large loss of life here in our own backyard in, in a beautiful place in St. Margaret's Bay. The events of April 2020, of course, a story that's still unfolding. That's a huge story. But these are all huge stories of loss. And I guess in a place where um, whatever our problems, our society operates pretty well. It's the stories of tragedy and dysfunction that tend to stand out as those do. But I, I do have another one that I want to mention. That is when we had the G7 here, you know, in, in the 1990s. And I remember the great shock when Cretchen decided to send the G7 to Little Halifax instead of Quebec City, because they were already building the barriers in Quebec. They thought it was going to go to Quebec City. And for reasons best known to the to the Right Honorable Jean Chrétien, and I suppose there were probably a couple of his ministers who played a role. Halifax got the G7, and that was a real coming-of-age event for Halifax, I feel. 
Um, again, what I spoke earlier of some of the seeds that got planted a long time ago that are only now beginning to sprout, I have a feeling that Halifax kind of came onto the world map a little bit with the G7. And in fact, I remember, and this is a curious thing to remember, but I, as I say, I'm a maritime nationalist and a kind of a local that way. I remember it was after that that, that Halifax started showing up on weather maps in, on U.S. television <laughs> and uh, in the New York Times weather map and in the Globe and Mail and overseas. And I think that maybe... You know, that was, that was a bit of a, a renaissance or the beginning of a renaissance for Halifax that we had the world here for three or four days with Wolf Blitzer, you know, and all the, all the media people, the personalities who came to cover it. Uh, just a, an aside on that, I was, uh, I was chair of the uh, Chamber of Commerce at that time, and we, we were responsible for running the People's Con uh, Conference that went alongside that. Right. And uh, one of the things that I, uh, that I got to do is we opened the, uh, at that time, the new Y and uh, community Y on Goddickton Street, and we got Hillary Clinton to right. open it while she was there, and I met her, and she uh, she was a very impressive uh, woman, I must say. So that was a big event. I I do agree with you. It was a big event, and it also proved. And and you might remember that uh, there was a reporter, a well known American report, reporter, Irving R. Levine, who hmm. was among those who thought that Halifax was too small a city to hold. The, the G7. I mean, he'd been accustomed to going to the world capitals for the G7. Um, and I think that we proved that, well, something that we all know, and that is that the Maritimes has always punched above its weight. For some reason, when we do things here, particularly big things, we find a way to do them well. You remember mm -hmm. when we had the World Junior Hockey Championship? Here? Mm -hmm. I mean, that that is still, and there have been larger championships in larger buildings and larger cities, yes. But I give Fred McGilvery and that crew a huge amount of credit for taking a great big bite out of a project and then delivering. And anybody who took part in that event, including people who came from other countries, and, and there were many in our business, many journalists, mm -hmm. they were all shocked that Halifax was capable of it. But to, to your point earlier, Don, we are capable of big things, right. and there's no better way to test yourself than to take on some big things and see how you do. And you know what? We usually do pretty damn well. You've been listening to part one of Don and David's chat with Steve Murphy. In part two next week, Steve will talk about his favorite interview in 45 years of broadcasting. He will also share his insights on the best Atlantic Canadian premiers of the last four decades. Insights is part of the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere helped with the production of this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend us to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.